Last summer, I had a superb weekend with my brothers mountain biking. Uh, we met up for a weekend, got to hang out with my sister as well. My big brother, Brett, asked Jeremy and I if we wanted to ride his trail that he'd been working on. He'd built it right into a mountain where he works near Mount Baker. He calls it Mordor. And that was just <laughs> about right. Oh man, he goes roaring down the trail and I can't even stay on my pedals with the brakes on. So I sat on my reinforced shorts and scooted down the dusty hill trying to keep my bike from beating me up as it was basically on my lap the whole time. Uh, there were some sections where I got to be on the seat of my bike, which is nice, right? It's always nice to have some seat time when you're on a bike hike, right? Uh, his, his trail wound its way along a river at one point, and I was like, wow, that sounds so refreshing. But I was busy trying to catch up to my brothers, right? And near the end of the trail, uh, I thought that it would never end, but near the end of the trail, Brett and Jeremy were taking gear off, and Brett had led us into a beautiful cascading waterfall that <laughs> we could sit in and be refreshed. It was really, really chilly. So after my very disappointing and dirty journey down the mountain, I found my heart full of joy and appreciation for the gift of of brothers. Sibling relationships take work for sure, but I'll say for me, the benefits have outweighed the challenges in my family. And as brothers, we still have a lot to learn from each other, sisters as well. Uh, our, but our commitment to each other is top notch. In fact, in another month, I'm going to go hang out with my sister and my brothers again. You know, in one reading of Acts 19, that we just went through, we get the picture of the Apostle Paul as a one-man show, you know, set apart, without peers. He's certainly being used by God to do all sorts of miracles. He's even made it on the most wanted list for the demonic powers. But then near the end of Acts 19, we, we hear about his friends, and I start to wonder, right, what would it be like to be a friend of, of the Apostle Paul? And Paul certainly did have friends, but it went a lot deeper than that for him. Uh, Paul had no intention of doing everything on his own, and, and nor did he think he could. He, he actually relied heavily on his peers, his siblings. If you were to read closely the letters that were sent to the churches, that's our New Testament for the most part, they didn't come from Paul alone. So do this. Next time you read them, uh, pay attention to who is with Paul and who he greets at the ends of his letters. Because yes, undoubtedly, Paul has a special role in the kingdom. But we find that he identifies himself as a brother among siblings, first and foremost. And if we remember back through the book of Acts, we see that he would rely on his siblings to encourage him, to recommend him, to rescue him. We've, we've even seen some great ladies like Priscilla and, and, and her husband Aquila that they met in Corinth. And he's talked about Phoebe from Cancrea, which is near Corinth as well. Let me just read this a little bit from Romans 16, 1 through 3. 
his letter written about this time, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Cincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need for you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca or Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. So as we get into this passage, I want us to think about what it looks like to be siblings together in the family of God, offering mutual encouragement and investing in Christ-likeness for ourselves and for each other. Okay, so let's get into Acts chapter 20, verse 1 through 12. After the uproar ceased, the uproar we just read about in Acts 19, fearful, riotous mobs, worried about their city, worried about their finances. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. And when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece, probably Corinth. And there he spent about three months. When a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus. And Gaius of Derby and, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Now, there's some interest, for sure, in the travelogue style, you know, diary, um, as, as we map the journey of Paul. But I want you to think with me about his traveling partners, his friends, his, his family. In fact, some of the letters in the New Testament come from this travel time. He wasn't sitting in his office at the church headquarters writing these letters. He was on the road or in a ship, surrounded by his spiritual siblings, his faith family, working out the details of these letters. From Paul's writings at this time to the Romans and back to the Corinthians, we know what Paul thought of the church as family. We find him identifying himself with his role as a nurturing parent at the early stages of their development. But then we see he comes alongside them in mutual encouragement as a brother as well. And I want to come back to this point in a minute to make some application for our life together. But let's go on in this passage, Acts 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, and this is this is cool, church, who meets on Sunday. This is the first obvious indication that Sunday was the day that the church met. So on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. And there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus... His name means lucky. There's lucky sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. 
And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. That's amazing. What an all-night church service in anticipation of, of his leaving. Right? Paul and his faith family are meeting together, working out their salvation together. Paul is encouraging the church to stay true to Jesus and to understand their role in the kingdom. These are brothers from another mother, sisters from another mister. Right? They're together for the cause of Christ, working together to see Christ formed in each other. Paul then, knowing that this is likely the last time with this little church, meeting in a home in an upstairs cramped room, he tries to give them everything they could possibly use in their quest toward becoming like Christ. I'm sure the, the thoughts weighed heavy on them. And so this one young man, a slave who had been likely working all day, crams himself into the only open space, probably with a window, you know, with a sincere heart to stay awake and lucky, you know. And he might have felt fortunate to, to be hearing all that Paul was unfolding. Uh, but but his, his nature takes over, right? It, the weight of Paul's words overwhelmed him. The day's work, the, the intention to stay awake is overwhelmed and he falls to his death. Now, lots of jokes have been made about uh, Eutychus. Um, and we could condemn Lucky for falling asleep, you know, typical this, typical that. Or we could say, wow, this guy was dying to hear Paul, right? I think that's a better one. So <laughs> Paul often talked about being the least of the apostles. You know, he, he says many times, you know, I, I wasn't there when Jesus was crucified. I wasn't there during Jesus' ministry. I only met him on the road after all this happened, after his resurrection. He says, I'm the least of the apostles. But in the book of Acts, Luke is working overtime to put Paul in that same category as the other apostles, the reformed 12 disciples especially Peter. And I've mentioned this multiple times throughout the book of Acts. We've seen kind of point for point the things that Peter did and the things that Jesus did through Peter. And he did through Paul as well. Paul's role as an apostle was secured in this inspired document. I mean, all the way back to, to events in, in the prophets of Elijah and Elisha. He's pulling this all together. You know, in Acts 19, Peter was overseeing the first Pentecost event as the Spirit poured out on the people. And now we see Paul directly in charge of this event, and the Spirit does the same thing. 
But listen, far from being a model of everyday practice that you lay your hands on people and they receive the Spirit and then the resulting effect is tongues and prophecy, for the church this is a point to establish Paul in the category of apostle along with the supernatural work that God did through him. There's a lot of patterning that we needed to pay attention to. So what is the work of the Spirit? What is the Spirit supposed to accomplish in us as siblings? In a word, Christ-likeness. It's a long word, but in a word. What is my role as a pastor, as a brother to you? To promote a culture of Christ-likeness. What's your role with me? Um, Christ-likeness. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, and I want to read Ephesians 4 and 5, starting with 4 verse 11. Just, just listen to the heart for what the church is supposed to be about. And he gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Right? We're, we are supposed to, as a body, become like Christ. That's pretty clear. He goes on, Now I say this and testify in the Lord, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, the pagans, right? In the futility of their minds, they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Okay, what's the point? What's Christ likeness? It's, it's being renewed in the spirit of our mind and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, right? So therefore, having put away falsehood, now let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and, and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. 
Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. What did Christ do? He forgave. What do you do? We do the same thing. We are in this relationship with each other for Christ-likeness. Catching a theme? <laughs> oh, well, let's go on. Ephesians 5, 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. How? Well, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that's, that's an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do, do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. <laughs> wake up, O oh sleeper. Wake up, lucky Eutychus, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It's a beautiful passage that I just read. It rings out with truth about becoming like Christ in our commitment to one another, our reverence for one another. This passage that in Acts that we looked at of, of all those names of, of Paul's companions and siblings and and, and Eutychus and this family gathering together, working out Christ-likeness. And how do we live now in these times? And I just want to draw some 
analogies and and some application for us. Yeah, I think about Eutychus, you know, some people are dying to hear the truth, but there's not many crowded houses of worship around here. So, but here are our issues, I think, and, and our commitments at ICC as we come out of this passage. Um, we are committed to put the truth in action. To put the truth in action. Some people get weighed down with all the truths that they haven't put into action. They're downright sleepy with more truth than they can obey, at least by themselves. And we all need a community to help us put into action the truth that we know. Let's say it another way. We are overfed and underexercised as it comes to our spirituality. You perhaps remember the, the commission that Jesus gave his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Teach them to obey. Teach them to obey. We are committed to putting the truth into action. What's it like if you're a if you're a person who hears the words of Christ and does not put them into action? What could you liken that to? Jesus said, well, it's like it's like a person who builds his house on the sand, and when the storms come, his house falls down flat. How many of you have friends, brothers, and sisters in Christ that you've seen the life that when the storms come, everything falls flat? Jesus says, if you hear my words and put them into action, you'll be like a man who builds his house upon the rock. And when the waves come and the storm batters, it stands firm. Because we hear the words of God and puts them into action. I have brothers and sisters, not just my own physical brothers from my family, which, which I, I lean into as well, but that I rely on to help me. Do you? You say, well, isn't the church supposed to provide that? Yes, we are that. And also, are you ready for that? You ready to enter into that? We've talked about coming from the front porch to the couch, to the table, to the kitchen where everything's getting done, right? Are you on the front porch looking in? Come and sit a while, but don't just sit. Come and eat a meal with us and do life together. And then actually, let's come to the kitchen and be a part of producing for all those people coming in the front porch, right? That was what it was like in our house on 4th of July. Just streams of friends coming in and like, come on into the kitchen, right? But it's pretty rare that you want to look into somebody's fridge, right? Unless you know them well. Hey, let me just walk over and look in your fridge, right? That's the other aspect of this life in a family together. We want to have people that you feel totally okay with saying, hey, let me take, take a look at your fridge. Hey, can I get you something, right? From your fridge. That's the kind of vulnerability that I'm committed to. Hey guys, come and take a look. Look at my life. What do you got? Brothers, sisters, come take a look. So let's, let's make sure that it, wherever we're at in that stage of family, we have people saying, hey, let's take a look. So we're committed to put truth into action and we're committed to be siblings. Committed to being siblings. That's a different level of commitment, isn't it? It's basic, Paul's basically saying, we're siblings and you're going to like it. <laughs> we're elected into the family. We're called brothers and sisters. And that settles it. This is our lot. This is who we are. 
know, we have we have voluntary friendships in the world for sure. People we hang out with, that's great. People that we like, but that's not what the church is. The church isn't about people that are like us or even people that we like. It's the family of God. So we're committed to be siblings. Another commitment we have is is that we're committed to overestimate our siblings. Yeah? (laughs) I always give my brothers the benefit of the doubt. Give my sister the benefit of the doubt, right? I overestimate them. That's part of what it means to have a brother or sister. It's a landmark, overestimation. We esteem others in the family more highly than, than ourselves because they are brothers and sisters, right? We're committed to overestimate our siblings. Another one, and the last one, kind of where we started, we're committed to Christ-likeness. That means you're committed to my Christ-likeness and I'm committed to your Christ-likeness. That's what love does. You've heard it said, love is love. But that's really twisted. If you think you can define love however you want and it means the same thing as what somebody else means when they say love, how about, how about this? How about what God says love is? Can we start with that? And what does God do to love us? And I want to lean on Scott McKnight for how he patterns a definition of love after what Jesus has done. Okay, this is his definition. I want to work on it a minute with you. Love is a rugged commitment. In fact, a rugged affective commitment to be with and for another person unto Christ-likeness. So it's a rugged commitment. Okay? It's covenant. We're in this together. This is what God says to his people. This is what he says about us. But it's also a loving one. That's where the affective comes in, a rugged affective commitment. It's not just, okay, I'm with you. It's growing in love for for that person, growing in care for that person, actually feeling for that person. So love is a rugged affective commitment to be with another person, committed to being with and alongside, and committed to being for that person. That's advocacy unto Christ-likeness. So Scott McKnight talks about a withness and a forness and an unto-ness, like with that person, for that person, unto, there's a principle of direction here, unto Christ-likeness. He says this about Jesus, the cross evokes humiliating rejection as the way of life. It's the ultimate form of withness, forness and untoness. Jesus identifies so fully with his followers, with God's people, that he enters Jerusalem for them, enters into their humiliation, their sinfulness, their death, onto a new creation resurrection. He takes upon himself the Roman curse against Jerusalem's powers and evacuate it of its power Instead of overturning violence with violence, Jesus' path is the way of suffering that overcomes violence. Jesus is is showing that love is a rugged, effective commitment to be with and for another person unto Christ-likeness. But you know this as siblings. Your direction, your hope for me, 
to be like unto Christ likeness. I have to know that you actually want to be for me. I need to know before I commit to your unto-ness, I need to know that you have forness, like you you're with you're for me, advocacy. And before I know that you can be an advocate for me, I need to know that you're with me, right? And when you're with me, I need to know that you're committed to it as well. So it goes both ways. It's a rugged, affective commitment to be with and for another person unto Christ-likeness. Do you have that for the people in your life? Do you love, in this way, the people in your life? It's a big challenge for us to think about that in our world, in our, um, in our churches for sure, and also in our world, do we really love those people that we say we love? Are we ready to be committed in, in a caring relationship with them so that we can be with them and for them with a direction in mind to become like Christ? So my last question for you is something that, that I'd love for you to take some really specific time to think about. Who is pouring into you, and who are you pouring into? So look upstream. Who's pouring into you, and who are you pouring into? Can you fill in those blanks? Can you do it? Who is it that you just said, pour in, pour in, pour in? Who's the sibling? Who's the person that's pouring into you, and then who are you pouring into? I want you to think back to that cascading waterfall. You know, my brothers and I hung out in after that mountain bike ride. The water pools into pools and then into other pools and then into other pools. And I just had to ask you, are you awake and alive and filled with the Spirit, ready to receive and to give? Or maybe you're on that dusty trail that's looking at the refreshing water, hoping you can get in. Well, join the family. <laughs> whether that means baptism into one of these pools, whether that means conversation with me to get you connected with other like-minded siblings that can help, help you pursue Christ-likeness, join the family.